Hello, everybody. Welcome to Z Prime on the Grid. It's our show about issues concerning the energy industry. I'm your host, Dylan Lockwood. Joining me, as always, is Aaron Hardick. How are you today, Aaron? I'm doing very well today, Dylan. I'm going to say something slightly controversial in the spirit of the show that we're about to record. It's only going to get to be like 95 degrees today here, and that's not too hot for me. So I'm really excited about that. I don't think that's controversial. I think that's just bragging. <laughs> uh, it's been in the 90s this week here, and it's just, and everyone says it's murder because normally, normally it's not so bad. Or uh, actually, I don't know what normal is anymore because we've had different summers every single year. Sometimes it's on fire and it's 100 degrees, and this year it's been rather pleasant. So, yeah, I'm not sure. Okay, so today we're going to be uh talking a little bit about something we only hinted at in our previous episode which was the resignation of epa administrator scott pruitt and to help us with that we've got our man on the inside in dc senior reporter at utility dive gavin bade how are you doing today gavin doing fine guys thanks so much for having me it's uh it's still swampy in dc it's very hot as well and now we have no water so we're surviving, have no water? Uh, surviving as ever Something's going on with the water infrastructure. Our pressure went down last night. And to be honest, I, was, I haven't read really what has happened yet, but apparently there's some sort of contamination and we're under a boiled water advisory. So really roughing it here out in the nation's capital. I'm sure there's a metaphor in there somewhere. So let's assume that maybe some people listening to the podcast are you know, relatively familiar with who Scott Pruitt is and they understand that his tenure at the EPA was very heavily filled with scandal, um, personal scandals. But can you just kind of talk about his overall view? Who is Scott Pruitt? Who was he to Donald Trump? And why him leaving would cause some people to think that big changes are going to be made, when in reality, a lot of people are saying that changes around policy actually aren't going to be that different. Can you talk a little bit about why people may have that notion, but we may not actually see a lot of different changes around policy now that he's gone? Yeah, I think that people people in the industry don't really expect a lot of policy changes uh, or the direction of policy to change in EPA uh, because Andrew Wheeler, who was, the, who was Pruitt's deputy and is now acting administrator, is really cut from the same cloth uh, as, as Scott Pruitt, in terms of his approach to power sector regulation. Um, I think that, you know, he has he said himself that he doesn't anticipate any change in policy direction. But what I do hear from industry lawyers is that they expect uh, Wheeler to be a little bit more thorough and careful in the way that he crafts uh, new regulations, uh, whether they're regulatory rollbacks or a regulation on uh, or a new sort of rulemaking. Um, and that could help EPA's actions in the future stand up to court scrutiny. Um, and he'll probably also not have all of the kind of nagging scandals that Scott Pruitt had throughout his tenure. Could be a lower profile EPA chief, uh, but maybe a more effective one for the sort of deregulatory agenda that Trump really wants. That is a big reason why Scott Pruitt was actually able to stick around so long, is because he was one of the most, uh, I would say, 
zealous defenders of, you know, that deregulatory agenda that Trump pushed, um, you know, always touting all of the regulatory rollbacks he had started at EPA, whether it was the Clean Power Plan, the Waters of the United States rule, um, or looking at changing the coal ash regulations in the power sector. I don't think that those things, those efforts are not going to be derailed. They just might be a little bit better supported in the record from the EPA standpoint. And that's why it's maybe a little bit of a counterintuitive take, but, you know, environmentalists that I talk to in the legal community or in the nonprofit world, some of them are more concerned about his replacement than they, than they were about Scott Pruitt in the beginning. Um, and I think that, you know, people in industry, conversely, who would campaign for uh, fewer environmental protections or, or narrow inter interpretation of environmental protections um, are accordingly encouraged by uh, Wheeler's kind of ascension to the administrator role. The Environmental Protection Agency is definitely plays a large role in in energy, what with the way that energy is generated, tending to have an impact on the environment that's conversation that's constantly being had in this industry. So what, what would you say was Scott Pruitt's energy legacy during his time at the EPA? Well, I think if Scott Pruitt was crafting his legacy himself, he would probably want to say that he was someone who brought the agency, quote, back to basics um, and kind of was a, a pro-business um, regulator. I'm not sure how much the I'm not sure how much of his legacy is going to stick, however. Um, you know, if you talk to a lot of power sector lawyers, they think that some of these regulatory rollbacks that Scott Pruitt pursued, whether it was the Clean Power Plan um, over the waters of the United States rule or some other regulatory rollbacks, some of them were crafted rather shoddily, is what people will tell me. Um, and they think that they could have been vulnerable to legal challenges and be, been able to be overruled. I personally think his biggest legacy will probably be on the internal structures and rulemaking processes at EPA. Um, he made some changes around the scientific advisory boards and what types of scientific studies could be considered for EPA rulemakings that if they are, if they're finalized and if they're held up in courts could really change the way that EPA makes regulations into the future. Um, so I think a lot of the, the headline-grabbing things that he tried to do, uh, we'll have to see if they stand up to scrutiny if they get changed in the rulemaking process. Um, but I would say my biggest conception of his impact could be on those internal processes at EPA. And for, for people who care about environmental protection, um, that has been very worrying for them to see uh, the changes that he's made to those processes. What, what does that mean for the way that uh, utilities are going to be viewing the agency going forward? I think that a lot of people in the power sector, whether or not they liked Pruitt's regulatory ideology and his proposals, will probably breathe a sigh of relief that all of the scandals associated with his tenure are done. Um, but I think that, you know, looking at the more lasting parts of his legacy, the, uh, the so-called secret science rule, um, or his move to put more industry-backed scientists on uh, EPA scientific advisory boards, those things could help industry in the future kind of get their way on public health regulations a little bit more. If, well, if that's the case that uh, the sort of regulatory rollbacks that he was, uh, that he was accomplishing were in line with what the president wanted of him, uh, what, what, why do you think he ended up 
uh, feeling the pressure to resign? Was it because the scandals were catching up to him or because they were inhibiting the fact that he was dealing with the scandals, inhibited his ability to work at the work at the pace that was expected of him? Because uh, I find it hard to believe that just uh, the scandals of, you know, misappropriating money would be enough to get you kicked out of this White House. Uh, so I, I'm curious where, where he was exactly he was feeling the pressure if he was doing the job he set out to do. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very difficult to say for sure. It's kind of all speculation, um, at least from my standpoint, to say for sure, you know, what was the straw that broke the camel's back that made Pruitt uh, pushed him to resign. Uh, there's a theory out there that he really only t- turned in his resignation after he lost the support of Fox News. You know, that morning that he turned in his resignation letter, like Laura Ingram did this big, uh, released this big statement about Pruitt saying that, you know, he should step down and he was, you know, inhibiting Trump's agenda and things like that. Maybe that had something to do with it. I can't be sure. Um, but we know that for months and months, these scandals had just been piling up over and over. Um, and eventually, you know, he or someone in the White House made the decision that, you know, this, this is just this is too much. It's taking up too much time. It's really starting to distract from the agenda. Um, and maybe, you know, and I think the, the thing that kind of backed up whoever made that decision, whether it was Pruitt himself or someone in the White House pushing him to do it, kind of what, what would make the White House okay with the decision is they knew they had Wheeler waiting in the wings who would uh, support the re- deregulatory agenda and maybe could be even more effective at it. You know, he's not just, he's not just a coal lobbyist. He did work for Murray Energy for, uh, for a few years at his lobbying firm, uh, but he also did work in the Senate. He worked for the, um, worked for the Senate uh, Environment Public Works Committee um, and also used to work at EPA as a staffer early in his career. So he really knows the inner workings of these agencies. And I think that, you know, the White House likes Pruitt, his zealousness in defending that, uh, that deregulatory agenda, but knowing that they had Wheeler as a backup was probably kind of lessened the blow from him leaving. Um, I can only speculate on why he left, however. Maybe it was Fox News. Maybe it was something else. And I, maybe we'll see him go back and run for office in Oklahoma. I don't think we should. Yeah, I agree with Gavin. I think it's a culmination of things, and we can really only speculate on what actually led him to resign. But I would imagine it had a lot to do with, yeah, his inability to actually get things done. I think that's, you know, that's why they're excited about Wheeler is he can get things done. Um, And then, yeah, the the scandals. um, And then just it, it seems like he did have, he has other interests in running for office in different areas of the government, which I believe he has you know, expressed publicly. So I think, yeah, there are a lot of things that were just starting to swirl around and kind of create this perfect storm. Um, and something was bound to happen for Pruitt. Like there, there had to be an end game given just all the controversy that he's been surrounded by. But I think now it's important for us to continue on the conversation of the actual implications implications the EPA will have on the industry moving forward. And Gavin, you started to allude to those a little bit when you talked about coal um, and other things. So in terms of policy, um, what can the energy industry expect in terms of changes around maybe generation um, or utilities when it comes to their bottom line and their ability to make money? Are there any policy changes that you see um, that could come out of Wheeler being the head of this thing that would affect utilities um, 
in terms of Absolutely. revenue? Yeah, I mean, you know, most utilities, their, their most direct revenue connections will come at the state level. But certainly, I think the the most the highest profile regulation or regulatory change that will come down will probably be whatever Wheeler decides to do with the Clean Power Plan, uh, you know, President Obama's um, carbon regulation. And I think that most industry lawyers that I talk to expect him to kind of stay the course that Pruitt had charted on this, which is not to just take the rule off the books altogether, um, but to issue a new replacement rule that's much narrower and easier for utilities to comply with. Um, so the general outline of this is that the Clean Power Plan, uh, it, the way that it regulated carbon emissions, they called it the an outside-the-fence line approach, meaning a power plant could – they put emissions limits at a certain level on, on all power plants. And for most coal power plants, they were very difficult to attain. So if you were a, an owner of a coal-fired power plant, what you would do is you would buy emissions credits to comply with, from other sources of electricity, whether it was renewables or whatever, and that would allow you to comply with the regulation. Um, generators really hated this approach. They said it was not legal under the Clean Air Act, and they challenged it, and this was one of the big issues um, in the legal challenges over the Clean Power Plan, was whether you can do this sort of generation shifting and make a coal-fired power plant owner buy emissions credits from another person um, or from another resource, you know? And I think what Wheeler is likely to do is just kind of take that off the books and say, no, no emissions trading between resource types. What we're going to do is just say, you know, we're going to set a, a much less ambitious emissions limit for power plants. And then if you can just make some efficiency upgrades to your plant itself, then you can comply with the regulation. So basically, it'll just be a scaled back carbon regulation. Um, and the reason I think they'll do that and not take it off the books completely uh, is that if they take it off the books completely, they're going to face legal challenges um, because in 2008, the Supreme Court ruled that carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases should be uh, regulated under the Clean Air Act, and the EPA has to do it. So unless they want to go through a whole challenge that will probably go up to the Supreme Court over the science of climate change and whether EPA needs to regulate it as a pollutant, they will have to issue a new regulation on carbon. But what they're likely to do is just issue a regulation that is so lenient that it won't really change anything, won't really put much burden on, on the utility sector. So the utilities are probably in the clear there. I think they, they probably had been hoping for something like this all along, um, although they, you know, most of them did not challenge the clean power plant in court. Um, so that's one regulation, just over carbon emissions in the power sector. Um, I think he's probably... Um, also likely to continue Pruitt's, uh, Pruitt's quest to kind of scale back uh, the EPA's first ever regulations on coal ash. Um, and I'm sure your audience knows coal ash is kind of that, the toxic dust that you get uh, as a byproduct of burning coal, not the emissions, but the solid stuff left behind. Usually what utilities do is combine it with water and make this big sort of toxic slurry full of, you know, lead and really nice heavy metals and stuff like that. And a lot of them are just left by the coal plants kind of out in the open. Sometimes the landfill is lined. Sometimes it's not. Um, and they have a tendency of leaking into water tables, rivers, things like that all around the country. Uh, so the Obama administration actually put in the first ever federal regulations on this coal ash a couple years ago. Um, and from an environmental standpoint, it was actually not all that stringent, but it did make uh, – it set some standards for states uh, – 
that they would have to put on their utilities to make them manage their coal ash. Um, as you can expect, when the Trump administration came into office, they start they went into a process of scaling this back, um, and I think that that will probably continue. Uh, industry has really like the utility waste groups have really gotten exactly what they wanted out of that regulatory rollback. That will probably continue. Um, I think that well, you know, one one thing that I'm not quite sure about, which is not exactly um, not directly connected to utility finances, but certainly certainly is so peripherally, is what Wheeler will decide to do on auto emission standards and how he will treat his negotiations with California over their emission standards. Um, if, of course, the connection to the utility sector could be if there are higher emission standards, cars have to be, um, if cars have to be more efficient, and especially if, uh, you know, there start to be some regulations that push for electric vehicles in some states, that could obviously lead to faster electrification of the transportation sector, higher revenues, um, and higher demand for electricity for utilities. Um, so that'll be an interesting thing to see how he approaches those negotiations with California, um, because, of course, California has a waiver under the Clean Air Act saying that they can set their own vehicle emission standards, um, and them being California, they've always set them much more stringently um, than the rest of the nation. Um, and because California is such a big market, obviously the automakers say, well, we have to be able to comply with these regulations. So they are, they complain that California is unilaterally setting an emission standard for the rest of the nation because it has such, you know, a, a huge market share as the fifth largest economy in the world. Um, so Pruitt, before he went out of office, was taking kind of an aggressive stance toward California um, and saying that they were really going to go in hard and try to get them to, you know, either lower or try to usurp their power to uh, set these emission standards, I'm not really sure how Wheeler is going to approach that process, but it will be interesting to see um, and will certainly have impacts longer term on the utility sector. When it comes to energy, who benefits from this, from the, the rollback of these regulations and who is more worried about them in energy, speci in energy specifically? Uh, and maybe we can, uh, maybe we can extrapolate based on who was benefiting and who was worrying under Pruitt since the stated goal seems to be to stay the course. Yeah, I think it's, you know, probably the groups are pretty much the same. Um, yeah, generally, I think a lot of industries in the energy sector have been generally happy with the regulatory rollbacks at EPA, uh, particularly the oil and gas sector. Um, Pruitt really acted to try to take some of the regulations on methane emissions, on flaring, try to roll them back as well. Uh, obviously, utilities, owners of coal-fired power plants are happy with these regulatory rollbacks, particularly around coal ash, particularly around the clean power plant. Um, and there was some rumbling about uh, EPA actually visiting, revisiting the mercury and air toxic standards, which were a 2012 regulation from the Obama administration uh, that tried to get coal, mostly coal-fired power plants to decrease their emissions of mercury, dioxins, other air toxics that are really not great for your health. Um, EPA has actually made some noises that they could revisit those standards. And some in the power sector, actually the three main power sector trade groups, um, wrote a letter to EPA this week saying, we've already spent tens of billions of dollars complying, this, complying with this regulation. Please don't go back and change it now. Um, and I think that that speaks to a, a larger point about this kind of deregulatory wave about at, e, at EPA. Even if industries are 
happy that they might have lighter regulation, they also chafe under the uncertainty of all of the rollbacks and not knowing what's going to be challenged in court, not knowing, you know, not having a good trajectory for what carbon emission regulation is going to look like for the next 30 years. You know, that de the uncertainty of deregulation can sometimes bother utility executives more than actually having fewer regulations on the books. Yes, of course, the utility sector plans decades and decades into the future to build its assets and not knowing if they're going to have to face you know, stricter water rules, um, stricter rules for coal ash, stricter rules for carbon emissions in the future really makes that planning difficult in a lot of respects. Um, so, you know, I think that it's, it's certainly a mixed bag, this regulatory rollback for industry, uh, even when they, it seems on the face like they're getting what they wanted, you know? Yeah, that was my question. I'm not too in tune with how utilities abide by regulations. I don't know too much about that. But I guess my question, Gavin, is, yeah, do you see any any rollbacks in policy? Do you think that a lot of it would actually affect or, or cause changes within utilities, would cause utilities to change their way of doing things, um, certain rollbacks on regulations around environmental standards? Like if they're already doing something to meet a current regulation and then that regulation was rolled back, do you think that that would actually cause that utility to change, change what they're doing if they have to, or if the current process um, meets the new standard as well, do you think that they would, do you think that they would change a process if it still works? I guess. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. And I think it's a, it's a mixed bag, maybe a little around the edges. I don't think they would change their core operations, but I could envision, you know, if you had stronger coal ash rules on the books, like utilities were making plans, especially in states that had chosen to kind of work on compliance on the coal ash rule. Well, they, they were starting to make plans to move their ash to other places and to put it in line landfills. And some states, you know, are still mandating, like North Carolina is still mandating that utilities are doing some of that. But I think that, you know, a utility that, you know, if those coal ash regulations come off the books and no one has to do anything, yeah, they might change their plans and just leave it where it is. Um, so that, that's, a, you know, that's one regulation that, you know, where rollback, I think, might have an impact. But around the larger issues of planning generation assets, transmission assets, things like that, I think these kind of administration-to-administration administration flips are probably less impactful. Um, and like, I don't think anyone's going to go out and build a coal plant because, you know, we, because the clean power plant's not on the books anymore. You know, that right. just doesn't make any sense, uh, make any sense economically. So, you know, I, I think in a lot of – for a lot of these utilities, they're much more worried about complying with state regulation and making their state regulators happy, especially in states that have, you know, a high renewable energy mandate or, you know, unique constraints uh, in terms of gas pipeline capacity or in terms of, uh, in terms of electricity prices those things can be a lot more front and center for a utility executive on the state level than these kind of broad changes in environmental regulation over time. Um, I think one thing that you might see happen though is that if, if the EPA does loosen standards on like the new source pollution standards, not, not for existing power plants, but for new power plants and new industrial facilities, you might see not utilities, but industrial facilities do, you know, be able to upgrade and emit more than they would otherwise. So maybe that, that makes a, a, a difference around the edges, but I don't think utilities 
in general are going to change their business model because of the Wheeler EPA. Uh, they may try to save a little on compliance here and there. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't see like a sea change because of that. I would say that there are federal agencies that have that power to really make utilities or, and other companies in the sector really change course and, you know, reevaluate their business models. But I would say that's, you know, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission first and foremost. Um, and then maybe the Department of Energy as well, depending on what they do with this whole coal and nuclear nationalization plan. So does that mean that, uh, does that mean that sort of the, the, the fear around uh, what, you know, what this will mean in terms of like coal, coal pollution and that sort of thing is a little unfounded, especially since coal plants are still continuing to close on mass. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, from an environmental standpoint, I don't want to discount the the impact of these regulations, right? Like, I think especially, you know, revisiting mercury and air toxic standards, loosening up new source pollution require, uh, pollution standards, uh, repealing coal ash rules, things like that. Like, these will all have an appreciable impact on the environment. Absolutely, you know, when you and I think that the the big worry from a lot of environmentalists is, you know, even if even if there aren't a lot of big impacts on the environment from these rollbacks, like and from a climate standpoint, you know, we can't really be even standing still right now. We have to be aggressively regulating and cutting emissions if we want to meet our climate change goals under the Paris Accord, if we ever get back, you know, ever actually get back into that or, you know, what have you. So I think a lot of environmentalists, you know, are very scared that there could be negative impacts and also that, you know, standing still is not really enough to protect public health. Um, so I don't want to discount that. Um, but I do think that like, yeah, most people, I mean, the, I, I don't see any huge sea changes in the utility business model coming from EPA regulation. Um, but yeah, definitely, you know, if you talk to the communities who are impacted by these things, like it matters if you live next to a coal plant with a huge pit of coal ash next to it, like it definitely matters to you if your state and the federal government are making the, are making utilities clean it up. Um, so I don't want to discount it, but it is a little bit different talking about from a financial standpoint, okay, what impact is this going to have on the industry to what impact will this have on public health and things like that? Yeah, I just think it's important that um, I think it's just important to remember that policy really isn't the only thing influencing business decisions like the economics of coal plants. Um, they're, they're just not as economical as they used to be. They don't make people as much money. And that's, I mean, that is something to consider. So yeah, policy isn't the only thing driving these decisions. Um, innovation and the ability to make money is really influencing the industry um, just as much or even more as policy changes would, in my opinion. You're absolutely right, Aaron. Uh, I think... I think another thing you can think about from that perspective is that uh, like, just because these regulations have been rolled back doesn't mean that, you know, current leaders in the industry that, that are focusing on, focusing on getting, getting more renewables onto the grid, working with electric vehicle programs and electric transportation programs with local transportation authorities, uh, the, those those leaders on on the local level are probably are almost certainly going to continue 
doing these things because uh, and they're, they're not going to stop. They're not going to reverse trajectory, like you said, Gavin, just because they they could now save a little bit more money if they started polluting more because it, it like they're already on a trajectory and they're 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 projected to make money doing it so they're pro- likely going to continue doing that so it's not so it, it's not like it's not like anything's getting banned or anything or or that the industry itself is going to be making a major course correction uh like you were talking about, Gavin. So I, I think you're right, Aaron. Yeah, that... and I, I think, you know, most of these utilities have, they have contingency planning that they do internally that, you know, assumes a carbon cost at, at a certain point and stuff like that. But I do think it's important to to acknowledge the argument, though, that, you know, if if we don't push these big incumbent companies to really clean up as fast as possible, well, like, they're tr- they're going to try to get all of these <clears throat> they're going to try to get all of the value out of their existing assets that they can, right? So here's where I think it could have more of an impact is if you're a utility that has uh, an aging coal plant, you know, maybe it's under cost recovery or something that, that you were thinking about phasing out, or maybe, you know, that was under pressure in, a, in an organized market or something like that. Maybe if there are not, you know, maybe if you don't have such stringent emission standards from something like a clean power plan or, a, a new source pollution requirement or something like that, maybe you don't make that decision to either upgrade the power plant or to retire the power plant um, kind of on the margin because you do have a little bit less regulation. So I think it may help, you know, we're not going to see more coal plants get built, but looser emission standards might mean that more coal plants stick around on the grid longer, emitting more. You know, and I think that the same goes for gas plants. If we eventually are serious enough about carbon regulation to start regulating it on the level that gas plants produce, um, you know, I think they could stick around on the grid longer. They could run more. So it could slow the transition to a cleaner energy future. I think utilities will always want to invest in the lowest cost technologies. So, of course, they're going to buy solar, wind, and natural gas. But they also want to keep those existing assets that they have and squeeze all the value out of them. And I think one of the biggest parts of the climate fight right now, just because of the trajectory we're on and how long we've kind of dilly-dallied and not done anything, is, you know, if you're from an environmental standpoint, you've got to push some of those existing assets off the grid if you want to meet these climate goals. And regulation is one of the ways that you do that. So I think that we can talk a lot about, you know, the, the market really pushing us toward a clean energy future. And I think that's great. But, you know, the environmentalist side would say, yes, that, that is happening and that's great, but there's still a lot of emiss- emitting resources on the grid. Looser regulations will probably make them stick around longer. And this is exactly the opposite of what we should be doing if we take climate change seriously. Um, so I think that that is really, you know, I don't want to be too glib about, oh, you know, all the utilities know where we're going already and we're just, we're all going to get there together. It's like the pace really matters. There are some companies who are laggards um, and they're still going to try to operate each one of those polluting assets if it's not regulated um, until the point that it doesn't make them money anymore. So I think it's just important to point out that, you know, that trajectory is the one we're on right now. Uh, So, you know, it's not, there's a tendency to want to be able to say, Oh, everything's okay. We know what we're doing in the sector. And mm, you know, from a certain standpoint, maybe we're not moving fast enough. Yeah, Gavin, I didn't want to discount um, environmental policy and its ability to you know, influence uh, utilities and their business decisions. I think, yeah, it's very important and very influential. But Dylan, you said something that's also important 
Um, things are getting done at the local level a lot of the time, especially with utilities. They're trying to reflect their customers' preferences, and we're actually seeing companies become more environmentally friendly just because they're trying to be more in tune with what their customers want. And a lot of customers these days want to be environmentally friendly. So, I mean, it's just being driven from a lot of different directions, but there are a lot of factors to be considered um, as we move forward, yeah, to this cleaner energy future. It's, it's a little bit about Absolutely. Yeah, and I would say that that customer sentiment thing is something that in the past few years has really, really, you know, since I got into the industry has really taken hold. Um, and utilities want to be, always want to be very cognizant of their customers' preferences. And everyone loves wind and solar. Like, they poll so high among Democrats, Republicans, anything. It's like a no-lose investment for them if they can, especially if they can monetize some tax credits for it. So certainly they're going to continue doing that. Um, and I think it's important to note, like, the local level is, certainly. And I think, you know, obviously the state level for utilities is huge as well. Um, some of the developments that we've been seeing coming out of California recently have been really exciting from a clean energy standpoint. You know, PG&E announcing that they're going to retire gas fire generation and replace it with batteries. That was stuff that we thought was pipe dream just a couple years ago, you know, um, and it's happening over and over and over again. So, you know, these ambitious states, I think, are really going to push uh, push the rest of the nation in terms of like discovering solutions to the clean energy future. And then hopefully, you know, if they're, you know, if we do have regulation one day that is more cognizant of the environmental challenges of climate change, maybe we already have some technological solutions that have been worked out in these locations like California, like Hawaii, things like that, that can really help us, you know, kind of make up for lost time uh, if and when the pendulum does swing back. I think both of those points are important to sort of understanding what the what this course at the EPA ultimately means for the energy industry. Uh, it 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 has it has an impact in in some regards, and in other regards, it it doesn't. So, like at the at the local level, this stuff's being happen. This this stuff's being happened. That's not a sentence. At the local level. Uh, things are happening that are going to happen regardless of the rollbacks of the regulations because they're economically sound, they're popular among customers. Um, but also, as you pointed out, Gavin, the the rollback of the regulations does mean that uh, there are utilities being incentivized uh, to to wait to slow it to slow the pace. So in that in that sense, they're they're there is an impact, so it, it it slows the pace. Even if it eventually, it goes back to what Shay said in the last episode that um, utilities, on the whole, want always want to be moving forward, but they have a hard they'll have a hard time making those kinds of switches without some kind of uh, without something kind of forcing their hand. And if their hand doesn't have to be forced, they can kick that down the road because of this rollback of regulations, then I guess we've come to the conclusion that the regulation that the regulation rollbacks from the EPA aren't changing the direction of the industry. They're just sl potentially slowing the pace that we'll get there, which is important. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Maybe that's the line I was searching for this entire time. Um, but I think, you know, there's, you know, we're talking about EPA today, but I think, you know, there's 
a lot of, from an energy, from both a financial standpoint in the energy industry and an environmental standpoint, there are a lot of things happening at other federal agencies that are also, could also be really impactful, um, especially kind of this Department of Energy proposal that they're cooking up at Trump's direction uh, to perhaps keep a bunch of coal and nuclear plants online. Um, it's unclear to me what that's going to look like. My bet is they will actually use the Defense Production Act and try to figure out how to fund it. Um, but depending on which plants they choose, whether they're coal and nuclear plants and how they want to keep them online, uh, that could have a really big impact both on electricity markets uh, in states that have them and also, you know, just on the emissions profile of the United States. You know, if they save a bunch of coal plants and keep them online, if they end up running for some reason, you know, that would obviously increase emissions. If they save a bunch of nuclear plants, which kind of could be, you know, uh, you know, could be a positive thing from a climate standpoint because, you know, if nuclear plants shut down, it's a lot of carbon-free generation going offline. So, you know, I think the EPA has a lot of environmental impact as well, but looking at places like DOE, places like FERC and what, what they'll do with plant compensation and the resilience docket, these things will also have a really big impact on which plants get built, which plants retire, which plants generate electricity, and which plants emit, um, and how, you know, how we see that evolve over the next few years. So EPA is a big part of that in the in decision making, but there's a lot of other moving parts at the federal level as well that utilities have to weigh and kind of weigh against their, their state and local obligations as well. So you kind of see how difficult it can be for these executives to try to like weigh all of their obligations, not only to all their regulations, but to their shareholders and their customers. Um, and it kind of speaks to the difficulty that they have when they see regulatory uncertainty because they have so many different moving parts. Yeah, I just think like the regulatory uncertainty is so, yeah, it can be so paralyzing. Um, just trying to be proactive and strategizing down the line in an industry that's traditionally focused on physical assets. You have to now change what your business model is really focused on. It's not becoming it's not becoming more physical, it's becoming less physical, but certain regulations are allowing it, those physical assets, yeah, to stay part of business models, which is creating, in some cases, even more um, confusion or it's making it more difficult to try to make money off of, of new things, making solar and storage and not as economical as it could be if these things were if these plants were offline so yeah it's it's very paralyzing i think that makes a lot of sense gavin to bring that up it's it's hard to make a decision right now for a lot of utility executives yeah i would say though at the same time there are a lot of great examples of really innovative utilities not just in the united states but in canada in europe where the kind of the utility transformation i think is a few years ahead of where we are um so I think utilities can look to their peers and look into new business models and, and new ways to grow their revenue, whether it's EV charging, whether it's, you know, owning and operating storage assets, whether it's different subsidiaries and stuff like that. There are models out there. Um, and I think it's just a question of kind of having the gumption and the bravery of them to go for it. Um, but I think we're kind of we're getting past the stage where everyone's like, uh, what are we going to do? Like we know you know, you're going to have to do more performance-based. You're probably going to face more performance-based regulations. You're going to have to find out a way to meet those, you know. We know that you're going to have to move into new emerging technology spaces, whether it's EV charging. You're going to have to talk to your regulators about that. Like, we can – I don't know. I can feel like I can kind of see a path emerging for the new, newer utility business model. It's just, you know, how quickly these bigger companies want to step down it uh, that I think will be 
a big question because obviously they don't, you know, they don't want to risk any of their rate base or any of their, you know, uh, any of their finances now. And they still have to be able to provide that reliable service that everyone, that everyone counts on even through their new business models. So yeah, it's, it's definitely, it can be paralyzing, but I don't think it has to be for utilities. There's a lot of people out there, a lot of people working on these issues, a lot of companies doing great work, you know, you know, if they, if you seek a pleasant solution, just look about you as they would say in Michigan. Oh my God, please cut that. Oh no, that's, oh, that's staying for sure. It's, it's, that belongs on a poster with a seascape. Do you know, do you know why I said it? It's because Michigan state motto is if you seek a pleasant peninsula, look about you. Oh, I didn't know that. I don't, I actually don't know what my own state motto is. I don't know what Washington's state motto is. I know mine. Does anybody else 80, know mine? Eighty percent hydropower. Aaron, we know that you know yours. <laughs> Texas pride. Uh, is it what is it? Everything's um, bigger in Texas. Yeah, everything's <laughs> bigger in Texas. Uh, I think you know. Why don't you just do the whole podcast in that voice? <laughs> <laughs> if I had a thick southern draw, that would probably. Do you think, Dylan, that would drive our, our listenership? Is that a word, a listenership? Do you think yeah, it would drive drive that up? Maybe I'll try uh, it out for the next podcast. Yeah, I, I'm sure. I think it would uh, attract all of the oil magnates that listen to our podcast. <laughs> uh, I'd have to. Uh, uh, oh. uh, I don't know what. Uh, I'm gonna look. I'm gonna look up what Washington State. The Washington State motto is it's uh by and by. Ugh, that's awful. <laughs> Wait, none of y'all got to make a FERC pun. Oh yeah, we did we didn't get into FERC. We'll have to we'll have to have you back on once the once that's do a FERC goes. thing. Yeah. We should do a FERC thing. Yeah, we should. We can do a FERC thing. I just wrote about some pipeline politics in New England. Yeah, when, once uh, once things develop more with this DOE deal, and we can we can talk about that and FERC. Maybe we'll just maybe we'll just start a new pod podcast of uh, bad energy news with Gav. <laughs> bad energy. Um, you guys, is that what I should call it? Is that what I should call my podcast? Bad energy news. Yeah, with Gav. That's always so. You need you need the with thing. That that's what makes it sound like a news news parody show. <laughs> I mean, like an energy satire podcast that could be that could be hilarious you know what i was going to do a podcast that was like more like kind of newsy but maybe i'll just make like the chapo trap house of the energy industry <laughs> that's it we've, we've that's a good spot to end it thanks for coming on gavin uh how can people find your work uh best way is to follow me on twitter at gavin bade B-A-D-E, bad with an E. Um, and get your Utility Dive newsletter every day, always free, in your inbox, utilitydive.com slash sign up. Um, and, yeah, that's that's where I'm at. Thanks for being on the show, Aaron. Thanks, Dylan. It's always fun to do this. Um, and Gavin's a friend of mine, so I was excited to have a good friend on the show. Um, I think it went really well. If, if you want to find our research and media, you can go to etsinsights.com. You can find us on social media at Z Prime Research, at DY Lockwood, and at Aaron underscore Hardick. My name is Dylan, and we'll see you all next time.